This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back, Behind the Knife listeners, to part two of this series on pelvic exenteration surgery for locally advanced and recurrent rectal cancer. This special four-part series is brought to you by Behind the Knife and the Department of Colorectal Surgery at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, or RPA as we know it locally here in Sydney, Australia. My name is Killian Brown and I'm a colorectal surgery fellow at RPA and I'm once again joined by my colleague Dr. Jacob Waller, who is a registrar and advanced trainee in general surgery, as well as Professor Michael Solomon, who's head of the Pelvic Exenteration Program. Those of you who joined us last time will know that for each of the four episodes in this series, we have invited a different international expert in exenteration surgery to join us for the discussion. And today, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Paul Sutton. Dr. Sutton is a colorectal surgeon with a strong interest in pelvic exenteration surgery at the Colorectal and Peritoneal Oncology Center at the Christie Hospital in Manchester, which is the largest single-site comprehensive cancer center in Europe. Dr. Sutton is also an honorary senior lecturer in cancer sciences at the University of Manchester and serves as an associate editor at the British Journal of Surgery. Paul's a previous RPA fellow and since returning to the UK has become a regular collaborator and a good friend to all of us. And so, Paul, it's great to see you. Welcome to the episode and welcome back to RPA. Thanks very much. Great to see you all. Great to be yeah, part of this episode. Thanks. So... Today is episode two of the series. In episode one, we talked about the principles of exenteration surgery, including preoperative assessment and patient selection. And so be sure to check that out if you missed it. Today, we're talking specifically about locally advanced primary and recurrent rectal tumors, which invade anteriorly into the structures in the anterior pelvic compartment. So as always, we'll kick things off with a case. So Jake, a 52-year-old man who's under surveillance for previously treated rectal cancer comes to see you. He has a rising CEA and describes some dragging pelvic pain that's developed over the last few months. 22 months ago, you treated him for low rectal cancer. He had long-course chemoradiotherapy followed by a laparoscopic abdominoperineal resection. And on pathology, the tumor was T3N1 and he had adjuvant Folfox chemotherapy. So how would you assess and work up this patient at this point, Jake? Yeah, thanks, Killian. I think the in the setting of the rising CEA and this story of the T3 tumor that's been treated previously, obviously the concern has to be for whether or not this patient's developed disease recurrence. I'd obviously want to get him into the rooms and take a thorough history and examination and review his progress since we last saw him. With that new pelvic pain, Obviously, the question is whether or not this is a local recurrence. So in this situation, I think I'd consider a pelvic MRI and probably arrange a, a PET-CT scan to, to assess for any distant disease. I'd also make sure that we 
organized to to repeat a complete colonoscopy for him to make sure there's no other lesions. Okay, so he has his MRI and here's what it looks like. What can you see there? Okay, so this is a sagittal MRI showing what looks like a, a mass at the level of the pelvic floor. It appears to extend anteriorly, probably towards the region of the prostate and the base of the penis. And it looks like the, the bladder kind of extends superiorly, or the, the, lead, the mass extends superiorly towards the bladder. Paul, so what are your initial thoughts looking at that MRI? Um, yeah, so just, just exploring that anatomy a little bit more, the tumour, the best description that I ever heard of what tumour looks like on a T2MR is like smudged pencil. It's like someone's drawn it with a pencil and then smudged it with their finger. And I think that's a really nice picture there of the tumour. And you can see it's basically replaced the entirety of the prostate. You can see clear invasion into the back wall of the bladder. The presacral fascia is very thickened and you can see all that scarring in the perineum. Uh, as well. So you know, those appearances are pretty convincing for a fairly significant local recurrence uh, in, the, in the pelvis. And so how, where would you take things from here? I mean, he's had his PETS CT scan and, and that shows that this is glucose avid. I guess the next question, and perhaps Prof, you can comment as well, is does this patient need a biopsy? And, then, and if so, how would we approach that? So I think at the moment you've got a very convincing history of uh, recurrence. So you've got radiological features that are suspicious for recurrence or highly suspicious for recurrence. It'd be interesting to see the tumor markers. Um, as you've explained, it's pet, it's pet avid. So th there is significant evidence of recurrence, but as a point of principle before subjecting somebody to what would be a very significant undertaking in terms of complex surgery, it'd be prudent to try and arrange tissue diagnosis. And it would be fairly easy to achieve this through the transperineal routes. And Prof, would that generally be your sort of approach as well? I think early on, perhaps we did more not with biopsies where someone's had an APR, it was hard to get tissue and the patients and there's a lot of fibrosis, but I think it is. We haven't been caught out with a good radiologist of operating on people without tumour and doing an exenteration, but I think as a rule, we would rather tissue diagnosis before putting the option of a, an exenteration to them. But I think a couple of times we get negative biopsies when we're absolutely sure and then the patients almost don't want needles again. But I would definitely try and get tissue and I think this would be fairly easy to get it here. I think you're right though, Prof. It does raise that difficult question of what do you do, what do, you do when that tissue is non-diagnostic and everything else is uh, shouting at you, you know, this is a recurrent rectal cancer. I mean, it's difficult to counsel the patient in that in that setting as well, isn't it? But you know, ser serial imaging showing growth and uh, raised tumor markers and avidity often have to make decisions based on that alone, don't we? I do remember one guy we biopsied something like four times, and he eventually said, "I'd rather have an exaggeration than another biopsy." <laughs> so, um, and he was definitely positive. So, yeah, as a rule, yes, I think we you should try and get tissue. You don't want to be caught out the other way in, in an asymptomatic patient, particularly. Yeah. So we might just step away from the case for a moment and talk about the anterior pelvic compartment in general. So Jake, just remind us about the anatomy and the structures within the anterior compartment. Yeah, so I try and think about the anterior compartment as the, the urogenital compartment of the pelvis. So just moving from a kind of anterior to posterior, obviously starting anterior, you've got the external genitalia, um, which obviously differs in the male and the female. You then proceed into the pubic bone the urethra and the bladder, prostate and the seminal vesicles in the male, and then the anterior vagina. 
in the female, and then you're starting to move into that overlap in in the central compartment as you move more posteriorly with the remaining female reproductive organs. And so, Prof, how do you conceptualize the anterior compartment from an exenterative point of view? And in particular, what's your experience been with R0 resection margins in the anterior compartment and how has that changed or improved over time? I think for those that are looking at the screen, there's a diagram of, of the pelvis and the anterior compartment from the laparotomy approach, so from above the pelvic floor, and and the one on the left is uh, from the perineal approach uh, looking up. But the point for the anterior compartment in exenteration, and the point of all exenteration, is it's an extra TME plane and this case particularly when you have a lap, a lap an APR whether it's lap or open the perineal dissection the extra TME plane is the membranous urethra the denobilious fascia of the prostate and the trigone of the bladder before it goes into peritoneal and so if you get recurrence there the important structures and immediately if the urethra is involved then the bladder really needs to go and the trigone as well so they're important functional tubes stoma decisions. The anterior compartment to me is understanding that the centre of the hemicircle is the actual urethra and therefore the pubic bone, pubic symphysis out to the obturator canal, which you can see on both of those slides, is involved in that hemicircle. So that's really the anterior canal. I mean, ours published R0 rates from when we started have gone from 63% for recurrent rectal cancer to 94%. And I think that's as we've understood the extra TME anatomy and been not tried to shave it off prostates or the urethra or bone and become more radical. And probably that 63% was when we first started doing it. The urologist did the cystectomy with us, whereas we pretty early took over the removal of the bladder and urethra ourselves and used the bone as our landmark. And then probably from that got us up to a 70% R0. And I think more recently since we've been more radical with bone and also uh, adopted the urethra, taking the whole urethra from the perineal approach in men and women, we've now got it up to 94% for recurrent rectal cancer. And so I think that's a, a technical approach to the anterior compartment uh, is very uh, anatomy-based. Fantastic. And we'll talk a little bit in detail specifically about some of those techniques that you've employed to improve those results. But just stepping back to the case, so as I said, the PET-CT confirms that this lesion is highly glucose avid and there's no distant disease and the MDT or tumor board agrees that um, this represents local recurrence. The patient's a good candidate for surgery. And so let's now talk a little bit about the technical approach to this tumor and getting it out with clear margins. And I will just say that for those listening to the audio, there is an accompanying video which will be available. So, Paul, it seems like this patient's got extensive bladder involvement. In general, how do you decide whether the patient needs a, a total cystectomy or a partial cystectomy? And what's the general preference for reconstruction of the urinary system at, at the Christie? So I think the, uh, the, the partial total cystectomy debate really comes down to a couple of key factors. That The first one being the anatomy of the tumour and the anatomy of the urinary bladder and prostate. So looking at the scan and interrogating to see how much of the bowel of the blood is involved, whether or not the ureters are involved close to the ureteric orifice, whether or not the trigone is involved. So trying to preserve any part of the bladder where, the, where when the trigone is involved in the tumour is, is obviously going to fail. And similarly, a partial cystectomy that's leaving a very small bladder is going to have a very poor functional outcome. 
which brings me on to the second point really which is that you know these patients often have neuropathic bladders their urinary function isn't very good often as a consequence of radiotherapy previous surgery you can see that the bladder on that scan has fallen right back into the pelvis as a consequence of the pelvis being emptied as well. So partial cystectomy may sound like a, a better outcome for the patient because it avoids the need for a second stoma urostomy, but leaving them with a poorly functioning neuropathic bladder that's either got a suprapubic catheter in it or having to intermittently self-catheterize is not always a, a better solution. In terms of, of reconstruction, I mean, my experience has almost exclusively been highly conduit. And uh, as, you, as you can see there on the second part of the slide, I mean, that, apart from a few cases that I saw with you, Prof, where we had limited options in terms of how we uh, reconstructed the urinary tract, that's certainly our preference at, at the Christie and, and the vast majority of my experience has been with IO convicts. And Prof, what's your um, general approach? I mean, are there patients where you can oncologically preserve the bladder, but you'll do a cystectomy because of that anticipated poor function? And also, I mean, I know you normally do an ileal conduit, is that right? Well, our urologists like the ileal conduit. I must admit, we published an early series of colonic conduits versus our ileal conduits, which had a lower ureteric to conduit leak rate with the colonic ones. But we tended to do colonic conduits when the patient's already had an APR, so there's an established colostomy. And then you just transect the colon, leaving the middle colic branches to supply it and then flip up the right colon as a colostomy. And it saves the anteroenterostomy risk of a irradiated. So we tended to use it in really badly radiated ileum where we think an ileal conduit will have trouble. And that would still be our choice to do an ileal conduit unless the ileum's really irradiated and someone's had an APR. I quite like, I don't like the wet colostomy, the third option where the ureter goes straight into the colon and then it gets mixed with the stool and then comes out because I think it's a really smelly stoma and the patients don't like it. But I think the diverted wet colostomy, which unfortunately you can really only do, I think if the sigmoid is still there, so it's often for different causes where you can do a double-barreled colostomy in the left iliac fossa, leave a distal end of colon that's further on than the colostomy, and then that becomes a, a retrograde conduit of urine. So it comes out of the same stoma, but the urine doesn't mix with the stool in the abdomen. I think that's probably not a bad concept. I think the Europeans do a fair bit of that. But right. exactly what Paul says is right. I mean, the functional result, and some of them are completely incontinent already or already have really large bladders on their MRI from neuropathy from the original operation so or the recurrence. So I think we spent a lot of time trying to spare bladders early on and finished up with a lot more complications and unhappy patients. So it certainly needs to come into the discussion with the patient. One thing that I didn't mention that I think is probably worth bringing up is the difference between that approach in locally advanced and recurrent rectal cancer. So you know, it might be a little bit more open-minded to preserving the, the bladder in a, in a locally advanced case rather than a locally recurrent case, just in the interest of maximizing likelihood of clear margins. And I think repairing a, a chronically radiated bladder and reconstructing it with really poor capacitance is a lot worse than just a recently radiated bladder, which feels a lot better. Yeah. I completely agree. So on that point of margins, Prof, it looks like the anterior margin could be an issue in this particular patient. So what do you think the best way to approach it is? Well, I think if we're for a current rectal cancer and particularly where the membranous urethra is the anterior margin often of the tumor, then I think uh, for those that are looking on the screen, you can see classically where a urologist would come through doing a 
routine cystectomy, and that's where we would do it if we were doing abdominally. Whereas if you do a perineal urethrectomy, it's only a matter of a difference of about a centimeter or more down the urethra. But if you take the penis off the lower end of the pubic symphysis, one, you don't get into that terrible dorsal vein bleeding that you get after radiated pelvises in the male, and you get an extra margin, which I think is important. And that's certainly improved our R0 margins in men for recurrent rectal cancer. Any comment, Paul, from you about the perineal urethrectomy? Just what, in terms of the, the technical aspects of it, I mean, the uh, that diagram on the right for those listening shows a really nice exposure of the membranous urethra, which is uh, essentially the penis has been slooped and, and floated off the symphysis pubis there with an instrument beat behind it. Um, that dissection has been achieved by keeping a, a really close dissection on the pubic rami up to the symphysis, lifting it forwards and transecting through it so that the, the urethra comes with a specimen. I mean, one of the, the I remember the first few times that I saw this prof. One of my concerns was about the blood supply to the penis. But you very reassured me quickly. What's your experience of that been? Because my I mean, you showed me a number of cases of this, and I've adopted this in my practice now. But it always amazes me that you can divide all that tissue and leave a penis with a decent blood supply. Well, the urologist always said when we first started doing this and we had to, it was infiltrating that the penis will die. But we've done, you know, I think almost up to 100 now where we've never lost a penis. And, we've, and some of them in SCCs of the penis where we've taken half of the uh, penis, the residual half is gets its blood supply from the skin and is viable. It's not functional because you've disconnected nerves anyway. But the other thing is, in what we're doing now, the anterior part of the penis is still attached to the pubic symphysis, so it will attach. But if you disconnect it completely, then you need to reattach it. Otherwise, the penis contracts up and it looks a bit like a cricket ball in a sock where the penis hangs down in in the skin of the penis. So you just need to reattach it. But just for this routine one, it's still attached in the anterior ligaments. But we've ne- I've never seen an ischemic penis from what we've done, and we've done a lot of them, so... Okay, Paul, obviously the the anatomical considerations in the female perineum is is a little bit different. Could you just talk us through how you you approach the perineum and the urethral resection in in females? Sure. So uh, extrapolating that case through to uh, complete involvement of the genital urinary system, and that's going to require resection of the vagina and the urethra. Um, And for those listening, we're looking at a couple of slides with some lone stars placed on the labia majora and a dissection plane here between the labia minora and the majora. And in this case, it's encompassing the clitoris and the clitoris may or may not need to be removed as part of that. It's an easier resection to remove all of that genital apparatus. But that dissection plane is taken in the between the labia minora and majora, initially getting into the pelvis and uh, posteriorly taking that dissection out from the coccyx towards the tuberosities, creeping up along the inferior pubic rami. The vagina, once it's been mobilized, can be closed with a suture to allow um, maneuvering and uh, allow access into the pelvis and then essentially division of the soft tissue and the muscle to enter the pelvis in, in the same way and, and remove the tumor. The, there's normally enough tissue to close these primarily and the picture on the right shows that very nicely. So enough tissue from the labia majora and the skin around the anus to for a direct and primary closure of the perineum without a need for a flap. And Prof, your experience with this technique and how it sort of developed over time, and I, I might also just point out to the listeners that there's a, a very nice video description 
of this technique published in the British Journal of Surgery, which we'll, we'll put a link to in the show notes. Yeah, I think originally when there was advanced disease, we were often taking the labia majora, which then leaves a big defect, and you'd need then a VRAM flap to fill that defect. And cosmetically, um, certainly the photo on the right, you, you can see if you can leave labia majora, which embryologically is like the scrotum has a lot of elast- elastin in it, it can be, uh, it's cosmetically very normal looking after such a radical excision. But more importantly, interlabial approach embryologically leads you to an avascular approach to the pubic bone. Whereas as soon as you come onto the vaginal veins and oozing the periurethral and dorsal, again, you don't have to then cross the dorsal vein. You excise the dorsal vein of the clitoris, which is the same as the penis embryologically, and it's a lot less vascular than trying to do it from the abdominal approach. And I think much more cosmetic once for the longer term by restoring the labia majora and the appearance of the external vagina. And while we haven't done it, you could actually for long-term survivors make a neo-vagina using bowel if you do, do need to further down the track. So when I do these, Prof, I still hear you telling me to stay closer to the bone, you know, and you get bleeding and it means you're too close to the vagina, you need to move laterally and stay closer to the pubic rame. I still hear you saying that. Yeah. I think it's a good principle in reoperative surgery yeah. where there's no planes is you stay on the bone and that's a lot less blood loss than, than going in radiated soft tissue where you're often crossing vessels running parallel to the bone and, and parallel vessels are really hard to stop until you get rid of the, the specimen. Well, just on that point, we've talked about the urethra and the urogenital organs, but what about the bone, Prof? What if the bone was involved for this patient? What would the approach be there? Again, depending where it is, if it's usually just attached to the inferior pubic symphysis. That would be the commonest place at the junction of where the inferior pubic ramus comes in. The easiest way to remove it is to transect the inferior pubic ramus bilaterally from the ischial tuberosity, which is at the posterior two-thirds, and you just come inside that, the pelvic wall and laterals of that. Above that is the Alcox canal, so you'll often will get those parallel bleeding, but that's fairly easily controlled. Transect that and then also transect to just the lower part of the inferior pubic ramus that the superior pubic ramus maintains complete stability of the pelvis, but even if you had to take the whole pubic symphysis, the pelvis is actually stable and the sacroiliac joint fuses, so it doesn't even you can mobilize them immediately. And is this something you do yourself, or you get uh, orthopedics involved, and and do you use osteotomes or saws, or you can use a jiggly saw just by putting a right angle around. Uh, it's very easy to go through that. It, the anterior uh, symphysis is a little bit thicker and it's getting your angles right. So you really want to have the abdomen open to actually have a feel of where you're aiming for. And then I usually use an oscillating saw through that. And again, there's a nice video published in the British Journal of Surgery, which we'll include in the show notes for people who want to look at that in a little bit there's, more detail. There's a lot, a lot less bleeding when you take the pubic bone than there, that is when you come inside onto the pubic bone because you're crossing a lot of veins uh, as you go up underneath the pubic symphysis a little bit there. Even though you excise the dorsal vein, there'll be there'll be tributaries into the dorsal vein of the clitoris and the penis, abnormal obturators, but there's less actually if you go take the bone with it. And what about the reconstruction, Prof? If you've taken the whole bone in a more extensive resection, what do you need to do then? If you've kept the pubic symphysis, then you don't need to do anything. I mean, I think we're going to talk about the empty pelvis and perineal hernias and where we use flaps, but 
in terms of the stability of the pelvis, you, if you take the inferior pubic ramus like that slide you've put up there, we've taken the uh, inferior pubic ramus and the ischial tuberosity on the right-hand side, and you're looking at the sciatic nerve and the lumbosacral plexus. Uh, if you've taken the whole pubic symphysis, then you do need to put a bridge of proline uh, between the two arches of the bridge, otherwise the rectus muscle just collapses down uh, into the pelvis and you get a, a big groove. So it's really more to re-implant the penis and re-implant the rectus muscles to give the abdominal wall its contour is the only reason you put proline, not for the stability of the pelvis. And I use proline because you do need to have a permanent fixture there, not a, an absorbable one, otherwise they go in six months and then the whole thing drops down. I think episode four, we're going to talk in more detail about complications, but Paul, are there any particular post-operative considerations for this group of patients in the anterior compartment with extensive resections? So anterior compartment in, in general, where the urinary tract has had to be reconstructed, I think the um, the biggest sort of risk is of a urinary leak in terms of the specific risks of the operation is urinary leak. And they can manifest in um, a real variety of ways. And I think the key message for uh, urinary leaks is clinical suspicion. So, you know, any sort of deviation from the normal course, I think that's got to be really high on the list of, of what's going on. I mean, I know at RPA, you guys check drain creatinine uh, routinely, uh, and I know a lot of centres and a lot of centres do that. We we don't uh, in our centre, but we have adopted a a, a principle of, of getting lupograms prior to removing the urinary stents. I think, yeah, clinical suspicion for that is, is key, really. The other thing is that the more extensive operation in the in the pelvis and the more dead space in the pelvis, the the, the bigger the risk of empty pelvis-related complications. And clearly removing the bladder and the prostate or uterus, vagina, bladder, prostate in female is creating huge dead space uh, with, you know, ischemic tissue, translocation of uh, bowel and bacteria and uh, risk of empty pelvis complications, which I understand you're going to discuss in detail in a, another episode. Rob, have you got any comments before we wrap things up for today in terms of the post-operative management in these patients? Oh, look, it's they all get complications and uretic leaks, as Paul says, is the and, and entero, enterostomy leaks, which is probably around 3 to 4%, uretic leaks around probably around 10%. And we published a paper of our same urologists doing conduits for bladder cancer themselves or doing the same conduits for us and there's a much higher leak rate in exenteration because of the empty pelvis and the chronic radiated small bowel. So it is a big issue and it really increases their morbidity in terms of length of stall. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap things up there. That's probably all we've got time for today. I'd like to thank Professor Solomon and Paul for joining us and providing their insight. And next time in episode three, we're going to be talking about radical approaches to the posterior and the lateral compartments. And we'll look forward to seeing you then. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.